Today is August 9th. This is Verses and Flow. I'm Jennifer, and it is such a blessing to have you here with me today. So glad you made some time and space for this word and this communion. We are trucking right along here, and I am so grateful for your dedication to this journey of self-discovery and connection to the divine. I'm grateful because I know how you're going to grow and get better and stronger as a result of this process. And I'm grateful because you are choosing to do it with me. Now, our reading today spans from the Old Testament featuring Ezra chapters 8 and 9 to the New Testament, of course. And we're going to be covering 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 13. We'll also be sauntering through the soothing words of Psalms 31 and meandering the wisdom-filled paths of Proverbs. Now, in the book of Ezra, we're leaning into a quest for purification. We're immersing ourselves in the poignant themes of sin, repentance, and redemption, and we're reflecting on the nature of our humanity. In Corinthians, we're going to be grappling with the thorny questions of moral conduct and accountability and the practice of judging, which is a very controversial topic in Christianity, whether it's appropriate and if so, when. And then Psalm 31 is going to offer us a reaffirmation of trust in God's protection, while Proverbs reminds us that God is not impressed by outward appearances or self-justifications. He knows the true motives and intentions of every one of us, and He is going to judge us accordingly. Let's get into it. Ezra chapter Chapter 8, verse 21 through chapter 9, verse 15, the Living Bible. Then I declared a fast while we were at the Ahava River, so that we would humble ourselves before God. And we prayed that He would give us a good journey and protect us, our children, and our goods as we traveled. For I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and cavalry to accompany us and protect us from the enemies along the way. After all, we had told the king that our God would protect all those who worshipped him and that disaster could only come to those who had forsaken him. So we fasted and begged God to take care of us, and he did. I appointed twelve leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten other priests, to be in charge of transporting the silver, gold, the gold bowls, and the other items that the king and his council and the leaders and people of Israel had presented to the temple of God. I weighed the money as I gave it to them and found it to total $1,300,000 in silver, $200,000 in silver utensils, many millions in gold, and 20 gold bowls worth a total of $100,000. There were also two beautiful pieces of brass that were as precious as gold. I consecrated these men to the Lord and then consecrated the treasures, the equipment and money and bowls that had been given as freewill offerings to the Lord God of our fathers. Guard these treasures well, I told them. Present them without a penny lost to the priests and the Levite leaders and the elders of Israel at Jerusalem, where they are to be placed in the treasury of the temple. So the priests and the Levites accepted the responsibility of taking them to God's temple in Jerusalem. We broke camp at the Ahava River at the end of March and started off to Jerusalem. And God protected us and saved us from enemies and bandits along the way. So at last, we arrived safely at Jerusalem. 
On the fourth day after our arrival, the silver, gold, and other valuables were weighed in the temple by Miramoth, the son of Uriah the priest, Eleazar, son of Phinehas, Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Benui, all of whom were Levites. A receipt was given for each item, and the weight of the gold and silver was noted. Then everyone in our party sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve oxen for the nation of Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and twelve goats as a sin offering. The king's decrees were delivered to his lieutenants and the governors of all the provinces west of the Euphrates River, and of course they then cooperated in the rebuilding of the temple of God. But then the Jewish leaders came to tell me that many of the Jewish people and even some of the priests and Levites had taken up the horrible customs of the heathen people who lived in the land, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. The men of Israel had married girls from these heathen nations and had taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy people of God were being polluted by these mixed marriages, and the political leaders were some of the worst offenders. When I heard this, I tore my clothing and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down utterly baffled. Then many who feared the God of Israel because of this sin of his people came and sat with me until the time of the evening and burnt offering. Finally, I stood before the Lord in great embarrassment. Then I fell to my knees and lifted my hands to the Lord and cried out, O oh my God, I am ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you, for our sins are piled higher than our heads and our guilt is as boundless as the heavens. Our whole history has been one of sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests were slain by the heathen kings. We were captured, robbed, and disgraced, just as we are today. But now we have been given a moment of peace, for you have permitted a few of us to return to Jerusalem from our exile. You have given us a moment of joy and new life in our slavery. For we were slaves, but in your love and mercy you did not abandon us to slavery. Instead, you caused the kings of Persia to be favorable to us. They have even given us their assistance in rebuilding the temple of our God and in giving us Jerusalem as a walled city in Judah. And now, O oh God, what can we say after all of this? For once again, we have abandoned you and broken your laws. The prophets warned us that the land we would possess was totally defiled by the horrible practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, it is filled with corruption. You told us not to let our daughters marry their sons and not to let our sons marry their daughters and not to help those nations in any way. You warned us that only if we followed this rule could we become a prosperous nation and forever leave that prosperity to our children as an inheritance. And now, even after our punishment in exile because of our wickedness, and we have been punished far less than we deserved, and even though you have let some of us return, we have broken your commandments again and intermarried with people who do these awful things. Surely your anger will destroy us now until not even this little remnant escapes. O oh Lord God of Israel, you are a just God. What hope can we have if you give us justice as we stand here before you in our wickedness? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 
Everyone is talking about the terrible thing that has happened there among you, something so evil that even the heathen don't do it. You have a man in your church who is living in sin with his father's wife. Are you still so conceited, so spiritual? Why aren't you mourning in sorrow and shame and seeing to it that this man is removed from your membership? Although I am not there with you, I have been thinking a lot about this, and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ I have already decided what to do, just as though I were there. You are to call a meeting of the church, and the power of the Lord Jesus will be with you as you meet, and I will be there in spirit, and cast out this man from the fellowship of the church and into Satan's hands to punish him, in the hope that his soul will be saved when our Lord Jesus Christ returns." What a terrible thing it is that you are boasting about your purity and yet you let this sort of thing go on. Don't you realize that if even one person is allowed to go on sinning, soon all will be affected? Remove this evil cancer, this wicked person from among you, so that you can stay pure. Christ, God's Lamb, has been slain for us. So let us feast upon Him and grow strong in the Christian life, leaving entirely behind us the cancerous old life with all its hatreds and wickedness. Let us feast instead upon the pure bread of honor and sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I said not to mix with evil people. But when I said that, I wasn't talking about unbelievers who live in sexual sin or are greedy cheats and thieves and idol worshipers. For you can't live in this world without being with people like that. What I meant was that you are not to keep company with anyone who claims to be a brother Christian, but indulges in sexual sins or is greedy or is a swindler or worships idols or is a drunkard or a Don't even eat lunch with such a person. It isn't our job to judge outsiders, but it certainly is our job to judge and deal strongly with those who are members of the church and who are sinning in these ways. God alone is the judge of those on the outside, but you yourselves must deal with this man and put him out of your church. Psalm 31 verses 1 through 8. Lord, I trust in you alone. Don't let my enemies defeat me. Rescue me because you are the God who always does what is right. Answer quickly when I cry to you. Bend low and hear my whispered plea. Be for me a great rock of safety from my foes. Yes, you are my rock and my fortress. Honor your name by leading me out of this peril. Pull me from the trap my enemies have set for me, for you alone are strong enough. Into your hands I commit my spirit. You have rescued me, O God, who keeps his promises. I worship only you, how you hate all those who worship idols, those imitation gods. I am radiant with joy because of your mercy, for you have listened to my troubles and have seen the crisis in my soul. You have not handed me over to my enemy, but have given me open ground in which to maneuver. Proverbs 21 verses 1 and 2. Just as water is turned into irrigation ditches, so the Lord directs the king's thoughts. He turns them wherever he wants to. We can justify our every deed, but God looks at our motives. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-13 through 13 today, 
We see how Paul judged the Corinthians in a biblical way. He was rebuking them for tolerating a case of sexual immorality among them. Now, there was a man in this church. He was so trifling while I'm talking about judging. But he was living with his father's wife, which was a serious violation of God's law, according to Leviticus 18 and 8. And even the pagan standards of morality. Cicero, who was a Roman writer, said that this kind of incest was an incredible crime and practically unheard of. Paul instructed them to expel this wicked person from their fellowship and to hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. What he meant was they were to remove him from the church and from their fellowship and to leave him to the consequences of his sin, hoping that he would be driven to repentance and restored to God. Now, Paul also warned them that they were not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, but is living a sexually immoral life, is greedy, idolatrous, abusive, drunk, or dishonest. He said that it was their responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning, but not those outside the church who are unbelievers. God will judge those on the outside, but Christians are to hold each other accountable and to keep the church pure from evil influences. And we are still dealing with this today, and this is where things get a little tricky for us. I want to point out that there are some nuances and challenges that come along with judging other Christians, and judging just seems like such a harsh word, doesn't it? And this is a question I got from a listener, Dawn, a few weeks ago. She asked me, what did it really mean to judge other Christians and if it's appropriate to do so? And I really wanted to take my time with this and think through how to answer and do some research and studying to really come up with a thoughtful answer. And here's where I landed on this hot topic of judging people. So in my research... The Bible doesn't give us a simple formula or a checklist for judging others. At times, it even seems like we are getting two different messages about judging. But it is undeniable that Scripture guides us in discerning right from wrong, and it encourages us to help other believers navigate their paths. The first thing we have to do, if you're taking notes, this is number one. We have to distinguish judgment from condemnation. They are not the same. Condemnation says you're guilty and there is no hope for you. Judgment, on the other hand, or judging, on the other hand, says you missed the mark here, but let's work through this. I got you. There is hope here for correction and restoration. Let me show you something that you might not be seeing. The point is, we're not handing out life sentences here. We're not telling people that they are beyond recovery or beyond redemption. We're helping each other to make better choices in our lives. Condemnation is solely God's prerogative. As the righteous judge, according to Romans 2, 1 through 16, we do not have a heaven or hell to put anybody in. So we have to be careful when we call ourselves handing out judgments that we are not crossing the boundary over into condemnation. As fellow sinners in need of God's grace, our role is to exercise judgment with hope and love, acknowledging our shared or common humanity. Now, the second thing we have to do, and this is key, 
We have to start with self-reflection and examination. Jesus' admonition to remove the plank from our eye before attending to our brother's speck in Matthew 7 is a reminder that we need to address our own failings before addressing others. This introspective approach invites humility and prevents us from becoming self-righteous, self-appointed judges of everybody else. This means knowing our own vulnerabilities and temptations and ensuring that our judgments are not fueled by harshness or hypocrisy, according to Galatians 6, 1 through 5. The third thing, we need to offer tenderness. Our words need to be seasoned with love. Paul encourages restoring those in sin with a gentle spirit, shouldering one another's burdens in accordance with Christ's law, according to Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Love, as defined in 1 Corinthians 13, should be our driving force, patient, kind, and devoid of resentment. Our judgments must stem from compassion, prioritizing the spiritual well-being of others over pride or anger or holier-than-thou attitudes. Remember, it is not just about what we say, but how we say it. We have a responsibility to approach the issue, whatever it is, with a soft heart and a gentle hand. Our motives shouldn't be grounded in pride or anger, but genuine love and concern for our brother or sister's spiritual well-being. And then the fourth thing, we need to approach with respect and humility. Peter's counsel to honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God and respect authority, according to 1 Peter 2.17, this is resonant in the act of judging others. Even as we express our convictions, as we point out what we see in someone else's life, we are urged to maintain a demeanor of gentleness and respect. Our judgments shouldn't be overshadowed by arrogance or contempt or disdain, but instead they should embody courtesy, kindness, and humility. No one likes to be talked down to, right? So when we're discussing sensitive matters, let's make sure we're not coming off as arrogant or rude or like we're somebody's mama or daddy. And even if it is our child that we're talking to, the same rules apply here. Remember, our children belong to God before they belong to us. The goal is to lift them up, to lift each other up, not tear each other down. And then the last thing, is this the last? This is the last thing. Yes. Balancing truth with grace. Now, saints, let's let's think about Jesus here, the master of truth and grace. He never sugarcoated the facts, but he also showed compassion and mercy to those who came clean. As we navigate the complex arena of judging others, specifically other Christians, not unbelievers, we are not to judge unbelievers, we must remember that both truth and grace are indispensable. We can be honest and direct without being harsh, contemptuous, or insensitive. We can emulate Jesus's example of graceful truth-telling. By striking this balance, we can create a positive and supportive environment for our brothers and sisters in Christ to recognize their missteps, repent, and draw closer to God. In summary, the process of judging other people is never simple or straightforward. It's not an easy thing to do, even when we're doing it the right way. 
but it is never about being a spiritual judge and jury. It's not about looking down on someone else. It's about looking out for one another, helping each other climb higher and becoming the best versions of ourselves while helping other people become the best versions of themselves. And really, if we are constantly evaluating and examining our own lives for unchecked sin or blind spots and addressing those issues when we find them, do we even have time to focus on other people's? And I guess my final thought on this would be check your heart, check the motives before you go telling somebody something about themselves or posting on social media what your opinion is about this person or that person. Make sure it isn't driven by envy or jealousy or you mad because you feel like they're getting away with something that you couldn't get away with or didn't get away with. Because if that's where your desire for correcting them comes from, then you just need to keep quiet and go deal with them demons because you are not about to help anybody with anything until you do. All right. So that's my take. And of course, there is more that I could say on this topic. I'm sure many of you have other perspectives as well. And I am totally open to hearing them. I don't claim to be the authority on anything that I share here on Verses and Flow, but this is just my take based on what I see in the text. So I'm always open to hear what you all think. Let's pray on now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today with open hearts and a desire to love and serve one another in truth and grace. Lord, help us to discern right from wrong and to walk in humility, respecting and honoring one another as we navigate the challenges of this life. Guide us as we seek to help our brothers and sisters in Christ, always approaching with tenderness and compassion. Lord, grant us the discernment to distinguish between judgment and condemnation and to always prioritize the spiritual well-being of others over our own pride and ego. Help us know the difference in our motives and where we're coming from and when to speak up and when to shut up. Lord, may our words and actions be infused with your truth and grace. And Lord, may we strive to become the best versions of ourselves each and every day. Father, we ask that you would reveal any hidden sin or pride in our hearts so that we may be a light to others and a reflection of your love and, and a reflection of your grace. Lord, we want to always strive to lift one another up and draw closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray and all the people of God said together, amen. And our affirmation for today, I am in charge of how I feel and today I am choosing joy. I am in charge of how I feel and today I am choosing joy and our aphorism. We should be lenient in our judgment because often the mistakes of others would have been ours had we had the opportunity to make them. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being on this sacred sojourn with me. You belong here and we belong together on this journey. I love you. And if God says the same, I'll be right here tomorrow waiting for you.